lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. I've got a great guest today. I've got Dr. Donald Moses, and he's a practicing psychiatrist with more than 45 years of experience treating drug, alcohol, addiction, abuse. And thank you so much, Dr. Moses, for joining me today. It's my pleasure. You know, I've seen surveys that show drug and alcohol use has increased during COVID-19. We're self-medicating to cope with the stress, the boredom, and the mental health issues. And so you're you're t- very timely to join us today. I know your experience with drug addiction began back in 1962 on the heroin detoxification unit of Metropolitan Hospital in New York. Following that, you are a, psych- a psychiatric consult to the Long Island Jewish Hospital Adolescent Drug Day Treatment Center and the Triborough Hospital Opiate Addiction Unit. I know currently you're in private practice and you're using psychodynamic therapy in the outpatient treatment of drug and alcohol abusers. And on top of all that, you've written a fantastic book, Are You Driving Your Children to Drink? Coping with Teenage Alcohol and Abuse. So we're so pleased to have you here. Just Tell me, how did you get interested in drug addiction and abuse? I think it was when I was working at Metropolitan Hospital as a senior medical student, always interested in psychiatry. Uh, I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist. And uh, I was working with these heroin addicts that were in locked units uh, on the ninth floor of Metropolitan Hospital. I found them to be, now that they were off their drugs and not uh, needing them, to be rather sensitive and intelligent men. There were no women at that time with the men's unit uh, who were able to really express themselves very well. I was quite surprised. And these were not academically educated people. They were street people, mostly coming from Harlem, where Metropolitan Hospital is located. And I said, wow, I think people have got this whole thing wrong. Uh, Then when I went on to my residency at Hillside Hospital, I was uh, fortunately given most of the drug abusers who were admitted to the hospital because they knew of my interest. And very few psychiatrists at that time were interested in dealing with drug abuse or addiction because they felt it was not a psychiatric problem, it was a physical problem. But I felt differently at that time, and since that time, I have proved myself right. Well, you know, it's interesting because I work with people in my in my center with addiction problems, and I so many times I have colleagues say, well, you know, it's a matter of choice. And, yeah, it begins with some bad choices, but from, from the way I look at it, it's all about what's going on in the brain. You know, it, right down the middle, that cingulate gyrus, that, that part of the brain, that looping, what I've seen more and more times is it's so dysregulated. And once you start thinking, I need that, I need that, that thought keeps looping, then you get that dopamine, that neurotransmitter going in. I think you're talking too chemical. I think you're missing <laughs> well, okay, the psychological. Then, then I, I think for, that you're missing the fact that people, there are two kinds of people. There are those who have an addictive personality and those who do not. I think that uh, the, the concept is mostly an emotional need 
a very strong emotional need because of a very, very poor ego strength. Uh, well, I, who- I agree with you on that. I do agree with you on that. I just, I do think the brain plays a role. But tell me more about the emotional. What, what's going well, on? The, the addiction, of course, is a physiological need. That's what separates it from abuse. Uh, with addiction, you have severe withdrawal symptoms, which you do not have with abuse. Uh, in fact, with some of the addictions, like the barbiturates and some of the tranquilizers, like Xanax or Valium, if you get addicted to it and you withdraw suddenly, you can actually die or have severe convulsions. So uh, what I have found, and many of the concepts that I'm going to talk about today come from experience and not from uh, formal research. And many of the concepts are going to be controversial because what I found reality is not always politically correct. And what we're dealing with here is the reality that comes out of the mouths of dozens of drug abusers and addicts. So is there a, there's a difference between a drug user and a drug addict. The drug user just abuses the drug, right? No, there's a drug user who doesn't abuse. Have you ever taken a drink? Of course. Then you're a drug user. Then you're a drug user. Uh, people can smoke marijuana on weekends and never get affected. Uh, I had one woman who I saw many years ago who would take a snort of cocaine because she worked in a restaurant until four in the morning, then had to go home and clean house. So she would take a snort of cocaine and would allow her to work. She never became addicted. Uh, she gave it up when she no longer worked in the restaurant. So these are drug users. Then we have the abusers who need it, but don't become physiologically addicted. And that's the drugs like marijuana. Uh, there aren't too many, actually. Um, marijuana is the big one. But the addictive drugs are things like the opiates, the barbiturates, the uh, uh, crack cocaine, the amphetamines, are all, and alcohol, are all addictive drugs. Uh, the hallucinogens, like the LSD and mushrooms, are not. But there is a specificity to these drugs. Uh, with let us take let's start with the opiates because that seems to be the area of uh, most concern right now. Those are the oxycontins, the oxycodones, methadone, demerol, dilaudid, and of course, most of all, heroin. Uh, why why do people choose this? Because the opiates are the ultimate tranquilizer. If you've ever experienced a person using heroin, and not many people have, but I have, it's almost like watching an infant go on the nod. That's their expression. When I first started working with heroin addicts, the expression for the dealer was mother, the expression for heroin was milk, and where they shot up was called the crib. And there's such accuracy in those names because those of you out there who are listening and who are mothers or fathers and know when you have fed your baby who is very agitated at the moment, maybe crying, maybe screaming, maybe even having a temper tantrum, if you're slow in getting to it, they have their milk, they chuckle for a while, they become content, and then they, quote, go on the nod. They fall asleep. That is exactly the same process with a heroin user. And these are the most infantile personalities 
of all of the drug addicts that, that I have dealt with. Uh, well, that was a great you, description. I mean, I can close my eyes. I'm a mom with two boys. I can close my eyes, and I know exactly what look you're talking about. Now, picture that in a 25-year-old man or woman. And now you see what a heroin addict looks like. I've sat with them when they've gone on the nod. Talked with them when they've come out of the nod. But one of the reasons I'm successful is I'm not critical. You want to get off it? I'm here to help you. You don't want to get off it? That's fine, too. That's your choice. But if you want that help, I'll sit and listen. Uh, the... You, one of the questions that I posed was, is there a specificity in the choice of drugs? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, people who use barbiturates, they, we don't see these anymore, but the barbiturates were big when I first started. Uh, they cause, like heroin, total avoidance, apathy, and sleep. Marijuana and tranquilizers in low dose, they relieve anxiety. In higher doses, again, total avoidance. People think that use of marijuana is inevitably bad, but this is not true. I had a patient who was really a heavy marijuana user and was a junior in high school. And his average when he got through with his junior year was B. After therapy and after a police scare both, the police scare certainly helped, he got off smoking marijuana. He was not doing it anymore. And the senior year, he got a C average. Why? Because the anxiety level had gone up so much that he was not as able to learn as when he was tranquilized. So we see that what sometimes, most of the time, is detrimental at times to be beneficial. Uh, we have cocaine, which I find my therapy with cocaine addicts is an omnipotent drug. Gives them the feeling that they can do anything. The yuppies who had to trade bonds uh, for thousands of millions of dollars a day and had a guess on the whether they're going up or down would get into cocaine because that gave them the feeling, oh, I can do it. I can handle anything. Uh, amphetamines, the methadrine, the dexedrine, the Ritalin, they generally create a sense of euphoria. Alcohol, which I would think probably most people in the audience have at least had a drink or two and probably have experienced people who've had a few too many at a party. That and a drug we don't see anymore called quaaludes uh, are ego suppressants. That means you can go to a party, put a lampshade on your head and dance around because you're drunk. We can go to a bar and get into a bar fight, which you wouldn't ordinarily because it suppresses that part of the psyche that keeps us in check. The hallucinogens, which is LSD and mushrooms, usually those are trying to experience some kind of outer, out of reality experience and uh, could be very dangerous. I uh, was called out of a dinner, ironically, with a psychiatrist friend of mine was having dinner at my house, and somebody down the block was having a bad trip on LSD. He was screaming that he's melting, melting as if you put uh, cheese in, in the heat. He felt he was a large piece of cheese and was melting in the heat. Mm. So wow. I think that what we see here is the... Uh, the general use of a drug is generally uh, caused by the person's basic need for that drug. Uh, 
one of the one of the uh, rumors I would like to clean it, clear up is the idea that marijuana is a gateway drug to heroin. Many of the heroin users I have treated have never touched marijuana. Most of them don't like it. That's why they go on to something else, because the marijuana does not uh, give them the feelings that they would like. So they find something stronger. But statistically, people have said that many heroin users have used marijuana. Well, I have proved statistically that milk is a gateway drug because only some of the heroin users have smoked marijuana, but all of the heroin users I've ever spoken to have drunk milk. So statistics can take you anywhere you would like, but generally uh, that we have to be more experiential than statistically oriented. So I hear what you're saying. You're saying that people gravitate to a drug for a specific reason. Correct. Right. And do do they know what they're doing when they're doing this, or do they just kind of fall, figure it out and fall into the drug of choice? Uh, they very often will fall into their drug of choice. But a lot of them, uh, they love drug education in school because that gives them an idea of what drug will satisfy them the most. We think that we're educating them not to use drugs. Well, everyone who is inclined to use drugs and become a drug abuser has used that education to uh, decide on their drug of choice. That's an interesting way to look at that. So do you think that the drug education that we get in school, that's a common factor that affects most addicts? No, not really. I think they just use it. Uh, what the common factor that affects most addicts uh, has a lot more to do with parenting, society, uh, expectations. Uh, those are the basic uh, basic causes of drug abuse. In the book that I wrote, Are You Driving Your Children to Drink? Uh, I pointed out the relationship between parental upbringing and drug abuse. And there's a huge connection there. With almost every uh, individual that I've treated, every young teenager or even uh, a few early teens, like 12 or 13, were already trying drugs. There was a dysfunctional family at home. So that you, what I hear you say is that that initial use of drugs is in reaction to something that's going on in the house. You're not comfortable. You don't feel loved. You don't feel wanted. You don't feel nourished. You don't feel secure. You don't feel that there's somebody you can depend on. Uh, I think that uh, if we change the term from addict or abuser to dependent on drugs, we get a better idea of what it is. In a healthy household, a child feels insecure, goes to run to mommy or daddy, and uh, feels a sense of security, a sense of safety. (laughs) If there's no mommy or daddy that you feel safe with, then what are you going to do? You're going to to develop a apprehension about people and whether or not they can be supportive to you. And very often, and this is one thing I have, I've coined the term, nobody uses it but me, 
are pseudo-independent dependency. Uh, you see in a six or seven or 10 or 12 or 14-year-old child, people will say, oh, look how independent he is. Isn't that cute? Well, it's not cute. Uh, there's a very high correlation between that kind of premature independence and later on drug abuse because the drug culture does not make demands. The drug culture only asks for two things, that you use drugs, or three things, use drugs, supply drugs, and are willing to pay for drugs, which very often leads to uh, either drug sales or very often with the girls' promiscuity. So when we think about what's going on and what's been going on for the last few months with the COVID-19, do you think that that has, how do you see that impacting drug use? I think people are having difficulty coping. Uh, we are very, our society is very used to being a very idealistic society. We're used to getting pretty much what we want when we want it. And suddenly, our whole life is turned upside down. And we're no longer capable of uh, get, uh, of going to work. It's scary. It's very scary. Uh, you're, you're afraid that if you talk to a friend without a mask, you're going to come down with a deadly disease. It's scary. And people are looking for a way of alleviating that fear and that anxiety. Uh, a lot of it is reality to think that the number of businesses, small businesses especially, that are closing and the people who work for those small businesses being out of work and not knowing where they're going to go, that's a tremendously anxiety-provoking situation. Well, it is, and I think, too, some you know, some people, you lose your job, you have to recreate that with a job that maybe means you're not home when your kids are home, and you're not available. Um, you Maybe you're working two jobs. So, certainly, it impacts a home environment, and I do agree very much with what you say. You know, we all need a place to be secure. We need a place where we feel safe, and when our safety is not there, we we look to recreate. We try to create it. Uh, yes, that is one of the things we always do. And finding a group that really makes no demands on you. And as they say, misery, lo- misery loves company. And you're all sitting around and you're looking for something to alleviate that misery and that discomfort. And drugs can become the answer. But you have to remember, the opiate uh, epidemic started before the uh, the COVID epidemic, and the demand was there. And a lot of it, uh, in the second section, when we talk about uh, what we can do about it, how we can deal with our children better, uh, we will get more into how to prepare your children for this. But right now, I want to also clarify a couple of, at least one major concept. Most of what you hear about on the radio and television has very little to do with the demand for drugs. You're hearing about the supply. Drug companies are not the cause of drug abuse. They are not the cause of drug addiction. Cause of drug addiction is the home, is the society, is the, the definition of achievement and success in our society. Everybody has to go to college. Uh, Everybody has to be a professional. 
the blue-collar jobs, as we call them, which is ridiculous because uh, when you bring your car into a mechanic, you have a better chance of being killed by a bad mechanic than by a bad doctor. You have a better chance of your house burning down from a bad electrician than being killed by a bad doctor. So, but we have not given these careers those that respect that they deserve. Uh, I keep telling people that the only uh, recession-free career is plumbing. Think about it. If your electricity doesn't work, uh, you light candles. If something goes out, you try uh, your, your junction box or you uh, turn off the the... the uh, the circuit breaker where there's a short circuit. If your toilet is overflowing or you break a pipe in your basement, you're calling a plumber. You're not calling a doctor. You're not calling a lawyer. You're calling a plumber. And I think that we undervalue these careers. So everybody who is not, all those youngsters who are really not academically oriented but very intelligent, find uh, that they're demand that they're going to college causes them a great deal of anxiety. This is why I wrote a paper on learning disability and its relationship to drug abuse. So the expectations that, you know, get set, everybody expects every kid to go to college, and college is not for everybody. And when you talk about the skilled craftsmen and the skilled tradesmen that we, you know, we used to have a fair supply of, but they're, it's getting harder and harder and harder. And I think you, that you put emphasis on that for a very good reason. That is truly a valued skill. And the expectations that Everybody has to go to school. Everybody has to, you know, have a college degree. How realistic are those expectations? Not very. Uh, it's something that really has to be modified and more respect given to the the trades and, and the uh, let's call them the minor professions, such as plumbing, electricity, auto mechanics. Those are all very, very important life saving careers. Absolutely. And I think that we do need to, I think one thing that COVID-19 has done for a lot of us, certainly for me, is it caused me to pause and to reflect. And when I think about what I'm grateful for, and I think about what I'm thankful for, it is being able to get my basic needs met. And those basic needs have to do with the plumber, with the electrician, with the guy that can fix my car. Um, so I think that you make a, a really good point. It makes me wonder, though, when I think about how people start to get addictive. Is there such a thing as an addictive personality? Yes, definitely. And this was shown after the Vietnam War, where so many of the GIs came back addicted to heroin. And many of them could not get off without serious, serious therapy. And some just got detoxified and never wanted it again. Uh, the, the, the personality is a severely dependent personality. As I say, the pseudo-independent in the, uh, child who really is craving somebody to look after him and is acting independent because he feels or she feels that there's no one there 
they're the ones who are going to seek out uh, a drug and become addicted to it. The, the addiction is physiological, there's no doubt. You cannot take a non-addictive personality off heroin cold turkey. You've got to detoxify it. But the addictive personality will go back to it. Uh, many, many times, people who have dropped out of therapy with me, uh, gone into residential programs, run away from the residential programs, and gone right back to heroin. Uh, that's the addictive personality. Or the highly dependent, super dependent personality. So do you think do you think something like I have a client of mine, uh, one of seven children, and when you th- you know the Adlerian theory, it's all about fit your role in the family placement. Do you think that that impacts? I mean, if you're the last kid and there's just there's just no time for you or there's no energy for you, does that impact the personality? If there is no time or energy, of course. But if there is time and energy, no. I think it has much more to do with a parent's relationship with a child than with a child's position in the family. And there are many times when an older child or the oldest child will become addicted because the younger child is a tough act to proceed. Uh, in other words, you have a... a a non-academic individual is the first child, and the second child is a straight-A student, and the parents will look at the first child and say, what's the matter with you? Look at your younger brother or sister, how well they're doing. Well, that kind of relationship is really not great with the older child, because the older child may have other, <coughs> excuse me, areas of intelligence. In fact, the most intelligent man I've ever met is one who could not get into college. You know, you make a great point. That is, we don't, we tend to, in America, that we view intelligence as success in the professional world. And, you know, when you started off, you talked about how intelligent those people were that you worked with originally. And, you know, when we think of drug addicts, we don't, we think of, oh, you know, the homeless, the people on the streets. And that's not necessarily who they are. And I think about. And Lee, if I may interrupt you, they are not violent unless they need the drug. If they're on the drug or they don't need the drug, they are not violent. It's the need for the drug. They'll do anything to get it. And that's where the violence comes in. Well, thank you for making that point before we go to break, because I think that a lot of us do think that that they are violent and that that it's the drugs that make them violent. And what you said, you know, it's not the drugs. It's the need for the drug. And that need goes back to their emotional well-being and their mental health. And mental health matters. And I think that that's something that I hope we become more and more aware of, particularly after what we've had. You know, right now, black mental health matters is top of mind with just about everybody. So when we come back, I want to learn more about how early does that addictive personality start? Is it from the very beginning or does it evolve? We'll be back after these messages. Information about book publishing is power. The power to change your authoring life. 
and the power to change the lives of your readers. So join us for Your Guide to Book Publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. With your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. Thursdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific. You'll hear about statistics, scenarios, and strategies on what to do now. As the book shepherd, Dr. Judith Bryles is in. And each week, she will include publishing professionals that will reveal tips and secrets to the author's journey. If there is a book in you, you want to listen, learn, and yes, call in with your questions each week. For more on Judith and what she can do for you, check out her website, thebookshepherd.com. It's your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. Brought to you by Author You and The Book Shepherd with your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. wondered where the terms used in computer speak originated? The word cookie, that packet of information that travels between a browser and web server, is named after the fortune cookie, a cookie with an embedded message. Rebooting the computer is literally pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. The name Google was originally coined in 1938 by Milton Sirota, nephew of mathematician Edward Kasner, during a discussion of large numbers. Uh, Google is the number one, followed by 100 zeros. The word Yahoo was originally invented by Jonathan Swift and used in his book Gulliver's Travels. It's a derogatory term for a person who is repulsive in appearance. Yahoo founders Jerry Yang and David Philo selected the name because they considered themselves Yahoos. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. So we ended before break on an interesting point, and that is how early does the addictive personality start? Because, I mean, I've found myself saying before, oh, I'm addicted to that. When I think of, when I think of chips and salsa, oh, I'm addicted to that. But that's, you know, is that's not the same as an addictive personality turning, turning to drugs, right? That's correct. It is certainly not. Uh, you ask how early. Well, in 1946, Renee Spitz, a renowned psychiatrist, uh, did a study. There was an orphanage in New York City that was divided into two parts. One was taken care of by one uh, practical nurse, another one by another practical nurse. In one ward, the babies were dying, and they didn't know why. And the other ward, they were not. It turns out that in the ward where the babies were not dying, the nurse was very maternal, would go and hold them and hug them, walk around to each of the orphans and give them special uh, loving and caring. And in the other one, the nurse would just feed them and leave them. And Spitz came up with the term anaclytic depression, which is what killed these infants. But I do believe that the infants that don't die from this, this kind of lack of nurturing is when the uh, real addictive personality begins. So we might say that most, many times, it'll start in infancy. Not always, uh, because there's nothing as, that is always in the human condition. Well, do you think that could even start in the womb? If, the, you know, the, the mother is in a very 
traumatic, maybe even abusive relationship. Because um, I certainly think the baby's impacted by what's going on in the mom's outside world. You know, I'm glad you bring that up because I always believe that colicky babies are more likely to come from anxiety-ridden mothers. Uh, yes, I definitely believe that a mother's emotions play a role, which goes on, which just leads to right in to the second point I want to make about motherhood. The mother is the primary figure in an early childhood, uh, not the father. The mother gives the child a sense of safety and will allow the, the child will allow the mother to do things that it will not do for others because it feels that the mother is a, is a safe uh, support system. Remember, the child has been attached to that mother for nine months, hormonally, nutritionally, emotionally, and mechanically, used to the mother's heartbeat and rhythm of motion. I've often suggested to mothers-to-be who are patients of mine that if they're going to bottle feed the baby, to, to feed them against a naked chest, not necessarily against clothing. Let the baby hear that heartbeat. Let the baby feel the warmth of the skin. Uh, because I really believe that from that is when that sense of security really starts. And, you know, the idea of motherhood, uh, how it carries through to the adult world, when a soldier is lying wounded on the battlefield, you don't hear him crying, dad or girlfriend, you hear him crying, mom, mom. And that's looking for that safe, that sense of safety and security. The other thing I have found very often is that Mothers who have careers, not talking about jobs, talking about careers, put their emphasis on the career, causes a sibling rivalry with this amorphous thing that the child doesn't see. They're taking mommy away from it. And not only when at work, but at home, a lot of effort going in to that career. Uh, and the sibling rivalry will create a lot of anger towards the mother and towards the career. And, this, and anger is one of the things that leads to the rebellion uh, leading to the use of drugs. I have very rarely found a drug abuser who isn't either severely depressed, severely anxious, or extremely angry. And most often, all three. Uh, but let us differ that from a job. A child is not stupid, believe it or not. They, we don't give them enough credit for native intelligence. A child knows when a mother has to go to work or there'll be problems. And if a mother does have to go to work, make sure the boss lets uh, bring in the child so the child has a visual image of where mommy is during the day. Uh, I always say the most important game you can play with your baby is peekaboo. Why? Mommy's gone or daddy's gone. Mommy's back. Mommy's gone. Mommy's back. That mommy disappearing does not mean mommy permanently disappearing. We don't give enough credit to things like that. But it's very, very important. I think um, you're right. I do. I think that, you know, when you think about the very first thing that develops in the brain is the visual processing. So that's the very first way that they that we connect with the world. Um, do you think a relative, like a grandmother, can take the place of a mother? Much better than anybody else. Yes, much better than anybody else. And uh, 
But there has to be the mother, well, if possible, could have the mother there too. Mothers do die when the child is very young, which is unfortunate. Uh, but if a mother is alive and not there, the child knows mommy can be there but isn't. And that creates a lot of animosity right there. Well, what about the father? Can the father I'll, replace I'll, the mother? I'll get to that. I was going to get to that. No, a father cannot replace a mother. No. Because a father has a different heartbeat. A father cannot nurse a child. A father does not have the soft feeling that a mother does, that a woman does. Uh, if you ever watch a father, no matter how he holds a child, it's just not the same as the mother. The mother has that nine-month attachment to the child that uh, is just irreplaceable. Uh, but one of the things that always concerns me is now the concept that so many women have that motherhood is a demeaning career. You know, I'm a doctor. I'm a father. Being a father was more difficult than becoming a doctor. Once I <laughs> became a doctor, once, more, once I became a doctor, I became a psychiatrist. One thing, one day was pretty much like the next. I knew the patients. I knew what I had to do. My children were never that way. My first one uh, was born the day I started medical school. Uh, but he was a certain personality on day one and another personality on day three, an entirely different personality on year two. The second one is an entirely different person from the first one. The challenge is, is really, should be very exciting to a parent, to a mother, rather than being a drudgery. And you asked about the father, yes. He plays a very significant role. Uh, the father has to give the family a sense of security and stability, uh, a sense that he is there, that he can, well, just as an aside, uh, most people are not aware, but we have not really changed psychologically, intellectually maybe, maybe not, uh, since the days of the caves. We have the same psychology as the cave days. So men uh, have that sense that the androgens uh, play a role in the man being that aggressive. Take, take on the enemy warrior, take on the saber-toothed tiger, and come home with, with a haunch of mastodon, and not just two rabbits for the winter. Uh, and I think today's the children feel the same thing today as they felt 10,000 years ago, looking out of the cave, looking for daddy to come home. Uh, but daddy is absolutely essential. Our little girls growing up without daddy's love never feel that they're lovable, never feel secure in another, in a man's love. Boys growing up without daddy's, uh, sense of, uh, should we call it, uh, identification, where they can identify with his image and they can know what it be means to become a man. You know, nowadays, there's a, it seems it's not politically correct to differentiate between men and women. But political correctness is not always reality. And the French know people are different. And there is a difference. And we have to be aware of that difference if we're going to be able to raise healthy children. Uh, I think... I think that the the role of both parents is so essential. Uh, Hillary Clinton says it takes a village to raise a child. Yes, but only after the parents are there. 
So when you say it takes a village, it made me think about, well, daycare centers. And uh-huh. some, sometimes when both parents have to work and they don't have family available, they have to put their kids in daycare centers. What are your thoughts on that? My thought is sometimes you have to do what isn't ideal. That's the world. A lot of things in this world are far from ideal. This is not ideal, but it's necessary. And I think that uh, one of the problems we have in this country that I find among a lot of people, not everybody, is that we don't understand that sometimes less than ideal is absolutely necessary. I I have a funny uh, theory that one of the worst inventions that we've had is air conditioners. When I was a kid, we didn't have air conditioning. We had to uh, adapt to hot weather. We had to adapt to cold weather. Uh, The heaters in the car barely worked. There was no air conditioning in our cars. We sweated and we froze and we adjusted and we adapted. And I think that the lack of adaptation is something that's throughout, probably throughout most of the world now. I think that's a really valid point. You know, we don't have to adapt. Everything adapts to us, and it does immediately. We get immediate response on everything. So it is, as it kind of goes back to my thoughts, we just all have maybe had the opportunity to pause and reflect on what truly is important. Um, so kind of to talk a little bit more about, you know, when you talk about personality, there's all, everybody has conflict. Everybody does. What is the dependency and independency conflict? Well, that's a normal stage, uh, three times or more in one slide. But two, those of you out there who are listening with, who have had or do have two years old or three years old, I can do it, Mommy. I can tie my shoelaces. Uh, and then the next minute, Mommy, can you tie my shoelaces? The second time we see this is at the beginning of adolescence, where they're being thrust out into the world, and they go out and you say, be home for dinner at 6. And at 7 o'clock they come in saying, oh, well, I'm sorry, we're playing ball. Uh, but they come in for dinner at 6, and the door's locked and you're not there. They develop a lot of anxiety. Where's mom and dad? And then the next time is at around 18 or 19 going off to college. And the same thing when you graduate from college or graduate school and you're facing the world. Can I do it? Can I do it? Do I need somebody to guide me to be there for me? And it's normal. But if it's never resolved to the independent side, uh, then the child is in a lot of trouble. Then you have the dependent personality, which uh, is what we have to be very careful in this day and age uh, because the dependent personality is connected with lack of confidence in the self. And that's what, why the book that I wrote with Dr. Moss, who is a, and I will say it unequivocally, a genius in child psychology. Uh, she takes care of the youngest and I take care of the oldest. She, she's uh, an expert up to about the age of 12 and I'm the expert from 13 to uh, adulthood. So we got together and wrote that book and uh, we concur. Uh, most everything that is in the book, everything that's in the book. That's why it's there. I shouldn't say most everything. And uh, one of the things that's happening today, 
always. It seems like everywhere. I thought it was just here, but I hear it's in California and probably in Texas too. The overprotection of our children. I don't know how I grew up without helmets, without seatbelts, with exploring, with going out and getting lost in the woods uh, in, in summer camp, in going out in the little wooden rowboat on Lake Champlain, which was rough, uh, to go fishing by myself with my little two-horsepower motor and uh, scaring the wits out of my parents. And then again, <laughs> I have to laugh. My dad was a child psychologist. And when I walked in one day, I had been uh, riding to hounds, which would be called fox hunting if we ever hunted fox, which we didn't. We didn't want to ruin a good day's ride. I walk in six months after Christopher Reeve's accident, and he said, where are you going? I said, fox hunting. I said, but you can get killed. You could break your neck. I said, I know, Dad. But you said, always said, in raising children, it's the first 75 years that are most difficult. I'm only 55. You got another 20 years to worry. But there's so much, there's so much truth in that statement that as parents, we have to prepare our children for adulthood. It is not our job as parents to make our child happy and safe at 15. It's our job as parents to make our child confident at 30 and a sense of security and a sense of capability at 30. That is our job. And there's too many parents now who are making their children happy and safe at 15. Well, I agree uh, with you. I mean, and I have to say, one of the things that I see with young adults that I work with for anxiety and depression, it's lot, it's lack of self-confidence. It's their self-doubt is so high. They're so insecure. And, you know, I, you've had a lot of school. I've got a couple of graduate degrees. I never took a class on how to develop confidence. It's just something that you can't, it can't be taught. It has to come from within. How can parents... It has to come from mom and dad. Yeah. If it doesn't come from mom and dad, it'll never come from within. And that's the whole point. Uh, you know, I have a few things here that I wanted to talk about that I think are right up this alley. And one of them is school. And why do learning... Why are kids with learning disabilities are so prone to go turn, turn towards drugs? Because where do we have our first real challenge outside of the house? It's in school. If you feel like a failure in school, you never develop a sense of security, do you? You develop a sense of, I can't do it. And nowadays, of course, there's a much better understanding and awareness of learning disabilities. But unfortunately, I don't think they're always diagnosed properly because learning disabilities can come from three things. It can be physiological, which would include things like uh, dysgraphia, dyslexia, uh, ADD, ADHD, or it could also be stemmed from severe anxiety or depression. Severe anxiety and depression are severe, severe limitations to the ability to learn. So you must make a proper diagnosis because sometimes medication is a miracle worker and sometimes it just makes matters worse. And how do you deal with it? By gearing the, well, let me backtrack for a minute. I don't believe that besides a really mentally handicapped individual 
because of a low IQ. I know my language is not necessarily politically correct, but I'm 82 years old and I learned to talk a long time ago. Uh, the, a mentally handicapped person, I had one in therapy. Her IQ was 70, but her wisdom was incredible. And we worked through things where she was able to become independent. Uh, it's a matter of how you approach. I do not believe there are learning disabilities for children with uh, intelligence. I believe there are teaching disabilities. You have to find the root. Some children learn visually and can learn through television. Some children learn orally and can learn through books on tape. And some children learn uh, visually by being able to read. And I think that if you find the medium to teach learning disabled child children, then after a while, they're going to realize that they can learn. The man who is who could not get into college but now runs a multinational, multi-million dollar business uh, knows more things than anybody. Uh, he's got knowledge because he learned from television. Man, man is not only dedicated and perseveres, but he, he's super intelligent, but never could do it in school, not academic. And I always like to quote Mark Twain, one of our great American sages. I'm glad to see that your education was never interfered with by your going to school. <laughs> That's and they, and they asked us to read Huck Finn in, in school, Huckleberry Finn. And at the end of Huckleberry Finn is all about that theory of Mark Twain's. So the teachers being unaware of that quote, go ahead and teach it anyway. Well, to me, that quote is saying life experiences are as big a part of education. I didn't didn't learn much in college. I got got very little out of college. I got something out of medical school. I got quite a bit out of psychiatry. But most of what I learned, I learned from dealing with patients. I am a Freudian. I am a Freudian in theory, but not in practice. You cannot practice Freudian psychiatry. Pardon? Well, before we go, we go there. We've got you know about five or six minutes left, and I think what the readers really may wonder is, how do you talk to your child about drugs, sex, money, careers? Well, money is an interesting subject. We need it, but we shouldn't make it the, uh, our medium of a sense of success. But we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, it depends on the child. When, when you send, you've got to be a parent who can titrate a child's maturity level. And when a child is mature enough, you talk to him about uh, the, the idea of drugs. I, I gave my kids options. I said, you can use drugs if you choose, but these are the consequences. And I don't think you'd like the consequences. We should not use drugs if you choose. And these are the benefits, and this is what I think you'd prefer. So neither of my children are heavy into drugs. And ironically enough, they've been having beer and wine with me since they've been 11 years old because I have a very European attitude towards it. And with a good meal, they should have a good wine or a good beer. And neither of them now have an alcohol problem, except they won't drink with me on a Sunday when I have a good bottle of wine and I have to take half of it home. So that's uh, so much for the idea of the young drinking. It's attitude towards it. But they were old enough and mature enough and intelligent enough to know that drugs are not something that you do. 
that it's uh, it's too uh, destructive. As far as sex, uh, they'll learn it in the streets. My parents didn't teach me sex. I doubt that your parents taught you sex. Most times we learn sex out among our friends. And to talk to them about the safety precautions, yes. As soon as you sense that your child is uh, aware of the opposite sex, yes, you talk to them quite openly about the dangers of pregnancy, the dangers of disease, uh, the dangers of waking up in the morning hating yourself. Uh, some of the young ladies I treated who were a bit more sexually active than they wanted to be, I would say to them, alcohol like sex, you want to enjoy it the, mor the next morning as much as you did the night before. You want to, don't want to wake up with a hangover. You want to wake up in bed with a man or woman who you can't stand being there. I said, you're going to, that sex is something to be enjoyed, that moderate drinking is something that could be enjoyed, but you don't want to wake up the next morning with mice with cotton on their feet running through your mouth. And as no, far as don't. money goes... So in the last three goes. minutes we have, talk, let's talk about money, because money is where we kind of get tangled up. We want it, we need it, but we don't well, want to want it gave, too much. I never gave my children an allowance. I gave them a salary. They went to school. They did their job well. They got paid. They didn't get their job well, just like in the real, real world. They didn't get paid. Uh, but they also had chores, for which they didn't get paid, that were called, I said, you know, we're a team in this family, and all of us have to pull our weight. And if you don't pull your weight, I'll have to pull your weight, and then I won't have energy to do the things that you ask me to do, like drive you to a friend's house. So I want you to pull your weight here. That's your chore. If you do extra chores, you'll get a salary for it. If you do it well, if you do it mediocre, you're not going to get paid for it. So I taught them from a very young age the reality of earning a living. And they both started work very young. Uh, I think my older one was 14 and my younger one was 16 when they went out and had jobs. So, That's great. That really well, is. And one thing, you know, just my takeaway is, because we're almost done, is the importance of the mother and the father in early childhood. And, you know, letting your child know how much they're, they're loved and giving them that safe space. Anything but you'd like so, to add to that? Yes, but not so safe. Like one guy, one father who always would intrude upon his son trying to put a model airplane together and was struggling and says, oh, that's all right, son. Let me do it. Boy, was that wrong. Yeah. You, you can, give, you can give too much. You see the butterfly on the cover of the book comes from a Buddhist metaphor, a Zen Buddhist metaphor. About two monks walking down the road, a young one sees a, a dirt road, a young one sees a butterfly struggling to get out of the cocoon, opens the cocoon to help him, butterfly falls to the ground, gets covered with dust and dies, says to the old monk, what did I do wrong? He said, it's only through the struggle of, of the butterfly flapping its wings to get out of the cocoon that it dries its wings and is able to fly. And that's why there's a butterfly in the cover of our book. Because if your child is going to learn to fly, he's got to struggle. That is a great closing. The name of that book, again, if people are interested. The new one is Raising Independent uh, 
and self-confident kids. Raising independent, self-confident kids. Thank you so much, Dr. Moses, and we all need to raise independent and confident kids. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify,